welcome to episode five of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and education. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and today we're talking about parents and schooling. My co-host, Kara Furman, couldn't join us in person for this conversation, but keep an ear open for one of our guests to cite Kara's work completely unprompted in the course of making a point. In this episode, we're joined by two philosophers who have done quite a bit of scholarly work on the sharing of educational authority, and in particular on mothers' relationships with schools, and who have also played a variety of roles with respect to schools beyond their philosophical work as well. I'll ask my guests to introduce themselves, and then we'll get right into it. Hello to both of you. It's so great to uh, talk to you on Thinking in the Midst. Uh, can I ask you to uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners? Amy, would you go first? Sure. I'm Amy Shuffleton. I'm a professor of philosophy at Loyola University, Chicago. Excellent. Thank you. I am Kathleen Knight Abowitz. I am a professor in the Department of Educational Leadership at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Excellent. And the title of uh, this week's episode is going to be, in keeping with the form of our episode title so far, on parents and parenting, let's say. Uh, I can workshop that later. Uh, this is something that both of you have worked on, both that you engage with in your everyday lives as people and as scholars and as you know school board members. Um, and it is something that you've spent uh, a lot of time uh, thinking about professionally in your philosophical work. Uh, can you say a little bit about uh, how work that you have done in the past uh, shapes your understanding of this particular issue? Amy, I'm going to throw to you first, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of your, of your, paper, of your work on um, the opt-out movement for that special issue of uh, Ed Theory, and also your work on sort of the disappearing labor of mothers. Could you speak about both of those a little bit? Just give sort of a summary, et cetera. Yeah, sure. I'll start with a little bit of how I got into this. When my own kids started school in about kindergarten, um, I mean, that's when kids start school, I started noticing how much uh, the public schools they went to depended on parents, which mostly meant mothers, because that's who did this work, uh, to do all kinds of things for the school that the school needed done and didn't have the money to pay for, right? I'm talking about volunteering in classrooms to help support early literacy, uh, running bake sales, organizing to get the fun, I mean, tons of fundraising. I mean, the school my older daughter went to raised something like a quarter of a million dollars each year to support just stuff like, you know, the science classroom or foreign language teaching. And this work was mostly done by mothers. And I started thinking about reading about reproductive labor and realizing that basically the whole, whole entire public education system was resting on the unpaid labor of women, effectively. Um, I started writing about this. I Yeah, as you said, I wrote about the reproductive labor one piece. I also wrote about the opt-out movement. Uh, in the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, I wrote something about how parents were and weren't involved in that. Um, yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, Kathleen, a similar question about how you sort of come into uh, this work. I think a lot, I mean, I use your book, your 2015 book, uh, Publics for Public Schools a lot. Uh, and since that book has come out, and perhaps before that, I don't really know, I realize, uh, you have uh, been serving as a member of your school board trying to balance competing claims uh, 
of lots of different uh, community members and competing interests, et cetera. Uh, how, how does your earlier work inform your uh, approach to this topic? I uh, wrote uh, Publics for Public Schools as a way to try to rework and rethink the Deweyan notion of a public um, uh, in, uh, yeah, 2013 20, uh, is when it came out. Uh, and it's, um, it's my attempt to think about modes of deliberation as well as conflict and organizing that happens around um, public engagement with schools. We tend to think about the public as kind of a singular thing. And increasingly in our pluralistic and um, sort of polarized society was thinking about how it, it's helpful for educators to perhaps think of publics in um, a pluralist sense, as well as thinking about public engagement as, as conflict, uh, a space of conflict. And, and so I've been writing more about agonist democracy since the publication of that book, as well since the publication of that book, I've gotten elected to my local school board. Um, so I'm dealing with all this, not at the theoretical level uh, at all, but in the practical domain. And so very interested in parents' rights, both as a kind of conceptual theoretical idea, as well as uh, thinking about what happens when a parent claims a right in a school board meeting. Like what is, what's happening there? What is that parent actually trying to say to other parents in the room, to teachers, to administrators, and to me as a school board member? So I'm really trying to think through um, in the in the work I'm doing now, um, think through what is what are what's happening in those spaces where parents are claiming those rights, as well as in my state legislature, uh, there's a parents' rights bill that's going to get debated on the floor uh, pretty soon. And so, what is that argument? You know, what is what's happening in that space, which is different. So, um, that's kind of how my work has evolved around this issue in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Yeah, that's an excellent. A way to transition into, you know, the contemporary moment and the subject of the uh, of the panel that you will both be uh, speaking on at PES. We are recording this in the week leading up to PES, even though this is going to be released actually during PES. Um, so, Kathleen, let me ask you just to say uh, a little bit more about uh, something that you just mentioned, which is, you know, the difference between the way that you hear parents claiming rights in front of you as a school board member and the kind of legislation that is going flying under the flag of parental rights bills, both, I mean, please speak to the Ohio experience in particular, but obviously it's not the only state in which this is happening. What are the differences there? Uh, what do you hear being, how, how do you see that all playing out? Okay. Um, so one thing that I see um, when Americans in general talk about rights, Americans have a particular way of talking about rights. And we tend to use uh, what Dworkin called rights as trumps. And so it's, uh, so we tend to use uh, rights in a particular kind of strategic way uh, when we're talking about who we are in public life in relationship uh, to other people. And so part of what I, I, I'm trying not to hear in, in when a parent gets up and is proclaiming something about parents' rights is sort of this absolute idea that parents control their children, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to make an argument that that's not what, how we should be interpreting this um, as a sort of literal claim. Um, 
but there's also so so part of uh, what is important in this is seeing spaces of deliberation, not as simply procedural spaces where decisions have to get made. Um, so for example, if you're standing in a school board meeting, that's a space of deliberation in which people are trying to work ideas out. It is also a policymaking space where if we vote on something, it becomes a policy, it becomes a legal directive. And so in that space, people are trying to work out really important tensions and problems in public where there are not many places for folks to do that these days among people who are not like-minded. Um, but we tend to sort of see these claims in very legalistic kinds of interpretive frames and therefore um, stop listening and stop trying to be open to what these claims might mean. And so part of my work is trying to open up that space to help people more broadly interpret what's happening when people, when parents are claiming rights. And for me, and, and, and I've worked on this idea a little bit with Amy at our OVPE at our Ohio Valley philosophy of education session last fall, I think a lot of it is about fear. And so I'm trying to work out um, what that fear is about, um, what that fear means, and how educators in particular might be responsive to um, those fears. And I can say more about that uh, if we want to, but uh, this might be a place to turn it over to Amy for a moment. Yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I appreciate the way that Kathleen's and my work fits together and is connected, but is also going in different, somewhat different directions. I like what Kathleen's doing on deliberation. I've tended to look more at rights as having the counterpart, of course, of responsibilities, right? I think that's something we often learned in second grade or third grade when our teachers pointed out that every right comes with a responsibility. And mostly what has what parents have been burdened with in the United States, especially, is responsibilities. I mean, the United States is almost uniquely unsupportive of parents. We're one of something like four nations in the world, and the others, I think, are Lesotho, Swaziland, and Papua New Guinea, that do not provide any mandated uh, maternal leave, let alone paternal leave, across the board. I mean, there are obviously some workplaces do, but it's not a federal requirement for all workplaces. I, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous, right? It means that it uh, and it weighs especially heavily on poor women, of course, who are working the kinds of jobs where they could have to get up the day after giving birth and go back to work and find someone to take care of their child because we also don't have any federal subsidies for early child care until you get to Head Start and maybe state preschool programs for three or four year olds. But those, again, are not across the board. In other words, the, I mean, the work of raising a child up to the point where it, he or she enters uh, public schools is entirely on the parents' backs. And therefore, I'm not unsympathetic to some parents who are claiming rights, because if the state tells you this kid is your responsibility 100%, and then starts saying, but now that the kid has grown up, we're going to take charge and make a lot of important decisions, I, I can understand why people bristle at that. Um, that said, I think there are some really problematic ways that parents' rights are being thrown around now, um, especially when they're being thrown around uh, to win support for politicians who have absolutely no intention of actually supporting parents or kids in these important ways that count. So I suppose one way you could sum it up is saying that I'm interested in the ways that the, the political and the economic cross when we talk about parents' rights, um, especially in the ways, you know, as a, as a feminist, I want to say that when 
when it's a matter of getting work done, women are made responsible. When it's a matter of having a political voice, women are asked to step out. And so, and which is especially interesting as regards education, because education is one of those spheres where women have been thought to perhaps have a political voice because it has to do with decisions about small children, which is the one thing that women are allowed to talk about publicly, except, of course, problematically, because women are never supposed to talk about their own interests vis-a-vis children, only supposed to talk about children's interests. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. That's that's really fascinating. The idea of rights and responsibilities as being mirror, mirror images of each other on the one hand, as uh, Amy points out, and then as uh, Kathleen is talking about it, the idea of a rights claim is, as as being made against uh, another person as protecting one sort of sphere of influence is uh, really key. The other, the, the thing that uh, Amy, your commentary makes me think of as well is like the, uh, the, I think it was an NPR podcast a couple of years ago, the, the nice white parents podcast. You're talking about all the labor that you ended up donating to your school in order to make it function. This is the quarter of a million dollars that you raised for a school Every year, I think about the Ohio Valley Philosophy of Education Society uh, brought in Brittany Murray uh, a couple of years ago as sort of a keynote speaker whose work is exactly on the way that this kind of parental contribution uh, ends up boosting a given school's bottom line or certain school's bottom line in ways that are sort of invisible to state accountability mechanisms that don't appear in sort of funding disparities uh, and that kind of thing. And the way, again... I'm just echoing the thing that you said about uh, uh, women's labor, in particular mother's labor, uh, both being required and also in various ways uh, unwelcome when it is turned to uh, uh, certain ends. Could you say a little bit, Amy, about your... Yes, please respond to that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't raise that quarter of a million dollars. I... Uh, went to work and let other women do the raising of a quarter of a million dollars and then thought about it and wrote about it. But of course, the women who were raising the quarter of a million dollars were mostly white, wealthy women who had uh, wealthy husbands, really, who earned enough money that that the mothers could afford to stay home and put all of their time into child raising and taking care of their kids. So we're talking about a very small percentage of the population who was able to afford to do this. Um, Getting into, you know, the economic disparities and the racial disparities, one of the things I've also noticed, and I'm not the only one to notice this, is that uh, basically women, mothers get bashed whichever way they go. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's uh, like black women, poor women get criticized for not doing enough to support their kids schooling as if they, you know, somehow had the time to run bake sales and go to PTA meetings while they were working to support their families. Um, Then white women, mostly privileged women who do come in and get involved in the schools. Everyone wants the quarter of the million dollars they raise, but they also get bashed for being too involved. And, you know, the social justice line is generally that, you know, those moms are a problem. And the, what, unsympathetic to social justice line is that the other moms are a problem. And there's never any recognition that, you know, these groups are being pitted against each other and that the whole structure is completely unfair. Like, why should we be expecting women to raise money for silence science classrooms in their spare time as if they had it so i i think what i'm what i'm getting at here is that while there's a a 
gender argument here that this is unfair to women. There's absolutely also a race and class injustice argument, which is that the the gender argument gets used to bash poor moms quite often moms of color and of course immigrant moms who might have different approaches to school and aren't expecting to have to raise a quarter of a million dollars for a science classroom because that's not how they do it in other countries mm-hmm. so it spreads a great deal of the the sort of current um ferment over uh sort of parental rights uh looks to me as though it's being grafted on to uh an earlier sort of uh uh, a, a privatization rhetoric that it's being used uh, to suggest that to the extent that an institution is a public institution, then it ought to be uh, responsive to, you know, at at the extreme sort of individual stakeholder control. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that dynamic uh, it appears in your uh, lives? Maybe Kathleen, can I toss it over to you? Yeah, so uh, we tend to, uh, we have habits today of talking about public institutions with the language of consumer. And so, because that is, as Americans, we, we're consumers, right? Um, and so parents tend to, uh, and many others tend to bring a language of the consumer to school, to public school, where, you know, I, I, you think about your kid in terms of sort of an ownership. Um, libertarians sort of enforce this with the notion that, you know, we sort of kids are your property. Um, and, uh, the school choice rhetoric really empowers all this kind of thinking that parents are sort of the sole arbiters of, of a, a child's, um, present and future and uh a lot of uh a lot of my work is really interested in the uh the democratic context for public education um and and what that means in terms of who has authority over education right and so amy gutman is a classical thinker in our field and her 1987 book is still really widely regarded in this area and she makes this argument uh breaking down um the state's interest or the government's interest in reproducing the democracy that we have now in some sense, not that it needs to be unchanged, but that part of public education's role is to continue uh, the possibility of a democratic state existing into the future. And so uh, by that standard, the state has a um, an interest in the education of, one's, of children generally. Um, but given that right now the state is sort of demonized as big government in many of these discourses, there's a denial that states or government has any interest at all. And Amy mentioned justice before, and that's part of this idea, obviously. Um, the families do have an interest in passing along values to their children, um, and parents actually have many rights legally um, in that regard. Um, and so in one sense, parents are demanding rights that they already hold. So that's a little bit puzzling and thus, you know, why you need to sort of figure out what's really happening when parents are claiming rights. Um, but the interest of students and, and sort of who children are as both current people and future citizens is mostly ignored in the parents' rights discourse. And of course, that's where educators are um, kind of stymied by these claims um, in, in many ways. So 
And part of the argument, again, from a democracy perspective, is that uh, children uh, children uh, need to think for themselves at some very basic level. And and so if we're going to have free citizens, we have to educate them to be able to think critically. And of course, that includes thinking critically about uh, your parents' lessons and, and their values and, and what they hold for you. Um, and so uh, it's it it it's puts it puts schooling and parenting in sometimes necessary tension, um, and 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 given that we are in a climate of both uh, polar political polarization and a great deal of fear around child rearing, it puts it it makes the parent rights claims very strident, and it makes educators very defensive in response. And that's exactly, you know, the kind of positioning we really don't need. It doesn't, it's not very productive. So interesting. I, I want to throw that directly over to Amy. Uh, one of the things that's striking to me about how this podcast is developing in general is that like the theme that you just touched on, Kathleen, has come up in virtually every episode that we have done so far. Uh, uh, Winston Thompson spoke about, you know, when he's talking about the morality of punishment in schools, he's he's like, he's like, you know, at some point, you know, students become autonomous, or that's the goal. But I don't really want to get into like exactly where that line should be drawn. And a lot of the problems here with like the parental rights discourse is like, that is the fight about like, everybody sort of acknowledges that yes, at some point, children are going to become autonomous and need to think for themselves. But like, at what point is that and who gets uh, a say? Um, Maybe I know that a lot of your work has uh, focused on the role. So like if parents are exercising rights claims, often that's being met with sort of public claims to expertise as a way of shutting uh, of shutting down this or of sort of countering this rights claim. Can you talk a little bit about how your work uh, deals with that particular tension? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is getting into something I'm just starting to think about. Um, I've been so, okay, at some point last fall, after the Dobbs decision, I was thinking about parents' rights and parents' responsibilities. And I thought, good Lord, like one of the very most fundamental parents' rights has just been taken away, which is the decision whether or not to even become a parent, right? I mean, that's one parent right that really matters a lot to say, yes, I'm ready or no, I'm not. So I started reading... Um, a bit about the historical struggle for abortion rights. And I've been reading um, wait, the Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood by Kristen Luker, which is oldish. It's from 1984, but it's it's an excellent book about how basically how, how we came to Roe to Ro v. Wade and how decisions were made and sort of the, all of that, but also the ways this brought up tensions among different groups of women around the issue of motherhood. And one of the most interesting things, and I think this very much translates into some of the struggles about parents' rights that are going on today, um, the early fights about abortion back in the 19th century were, in, were, were resolved, basically, by doctors claiming a professional expertise that made them the sole people who could make decisions out of, about abortion. And effectively, I mean, Luker's argument is that once doctors said, no, we're the only ones who can make medical decisions, and we control the profession, and we control who gets to do medicine, then all the moral questions faded into the background, right? Because once it becomes a question of technical expertise and the doctors are claiming it, then nobody else has a right to a say, and you have to just trust the doctors. And I think it 
could be argued, I'm being a little bit speculative here, that something similar is going on with parents and teachers on the parents' rights argument. Um, not, I mean, I think it's not coincidental that teachers have never been a profession in the same strong way as doctors and lawyers. I mean, doctors and lawyers have through like, you know, the AMA and the American Bar Association have enormous control over who gets to become a doctor, who gets to become a lawyer. Teachers have never had that same kind of control. Um, Teachers have never been rewarded with the same high wages, um, all of that. So it's never entirely been a profession in the same strong sense. But in the last 20 or 30 years, it's become even more deprofessionalized in the sense of being less upheld as you know something you have to have certain credentials to to do right that there's programs like teach for america and all sorts of other certification programs that you don't even have to go to ed school anymore and there's this in homeschooling you know anybody can teach their kids and i think reasonably enough teachers are feeling that their expertise is challenged and that they need to prove that they actually know something about teaching kids that ordinary citizens don't. And I think they do. But then I think where it gets tricky is where they start extending this expertise into realms that are really more about ethical decision making than matters of technical expertise, right? Which which is exactly what you could say doctors did back in the 19th century, right? Because there are moral questions at the heart of abortion, not just technical ones. And I think where the parents' rights discourse gets really feisty is when parents are making moral claims and teachers are making moral claims and each are rooting this claim in rights or expertise where those really can't be the determining factors. Can I jump in? I would add, um, I think this expertise tension is part of it, but I also think it's about relationships. Um, I think, um, and our colleague Kara Furman really raised this point in an earlier conversation where she um, reminded us uh, that uh, the the aspect of relation is really a key factor here and gets ignored when we focus on rights. Um, um, and, and so if you think about relationships uh, between educators and, and kids as sort of fundamental to genuine, authentic learning, um, and if you think about teachers as being and and maybe particularly teachers of older children uh, youth uh, they are put in particular situations where they are in relationship with kids who are testing out lots of different uh, uh, thing uh, knowledge claims and identity uh, uh, issues that they're living through and this of course is particularly salient with GLBTQ kids where uh, they are trying on identities that make their parents maybe uncomfortable at best and maybe really uh, freaked out at worst. And so um, there are relationship uh, dilemmas that parent, that I think educators are facing, and they feel like those are ignored um, by parents who want to put their head in the sand, they're not respected. Um, and then uh, I think that, uh, and I think sometimes educators really uh, don't really uh, will dismiss parents' relationships with their kids, um, assuming that parents don't understand or are close-minded or those things. And and there are many close-minded parents, absolutely, but um, I think that both educators and parents can kind of caricature the other, and they actually share educational authority, and they both have uh, critical relationships with kids that are vital to um, setting up a good, you know, a good 
space for kids to grow and learn and become who they need to become. Um, and so that sharing of educational authority is about sharing relationships with kids, but from very different perspectives and points of views and roles. And so thinking about those relationships um, is really is really key. I, I'm, and, and just to transition, like I've been reading this parents' rights bill that's going to come on that Ohio floor pretty soon in the state house. And this is a bill that is really trying to govern, um, you know, what what educators have to report, you know, to, to parents, right? So parents have to be notified about any change in um, students' mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being, which is a really big category, right? Um, prohibit school district personnel from directly or indirectly encouraging a student to withhold from a parent information concerning a student's mental, emo emotional, or physical health or well-being. And so this is a, a kind of, of um, law that uh, really will threaten the relationships between educators and kids. Um, and it's um, and, 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 and it's very troubling that this is um, that this is uh, the the sort of territory we're in with regards to um, the, the failure of trust uh, between uh, the public and its schools. Um, so uh, just, I, I think the relational element is really missing in these conversations. Yeah, I'd agree. Yes. So there's, I want to put these two ideas that we just heard together uh, for a second. One in which like the, the history of, Roe and the abortion rights debate and the role of medical expertise in that we see that playing out now, especially in uh, uh, issues of uh, gender identity and reporting in which we have like we have all sides sort of turning to medical science as oh, in an exact repeat of what was happening in the 80s. Well, not an exact repeat, but like or like I'll say like turning to medical science. One group is focusing on sort of a mental health aspect and another group is focusing on uh, a different sort of uh, genre. But this is happening right in the wake of, you know, a global pandemic in which medical information has been politicized. And so it can't necessarily play the same kind of determinative role that it has played in previous discussions, which only makes matters worse and makes the turning to it seemingly more futile or even more politicized than it might have been in the past. And at the same time, so like Kathleen brings up the excellent point that uh, that sort of a, the parents' rights bill coming to the floor in Ohio stands to uh, – put in jeopardy a certain kind of relationship between students and teachers. The other side of the coin matters as well, That, which is to say, I mean, by the other side of the coin, I mean that like uh, a parental fear slash the actuality of, of schools not telling parents necessarily when their child is, say, going by different pronouns in schools uh, ruptures the child's relationship with the parent or like that, that plays into sort of the, uh, the, 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 let's say construction of parents as, as, you know, close minded ish, or like we have to sort of treat parents as, as though they are sort of untrustworthy with this information, et cetera. And so like, there's three groups in this sort of relational triangle, the students, the parents and the uh, and the school. And it seems like uh, 
it seems like balancing those is really difficult is a is a way to yeah can i jump in here yeah so i mean i think one thing that's interesting here is if you actually look at what the real experts say who i take to be the wpath which is like an international group of trans health trans supportive healthcare providers who are actual experts on trans kids and healthcare and not just kids that covers all ages but they just released um their eighth updated standards of care last year and if you look at what that says especially the section on adolescence which is the tricky group i think i mean because those are that's the point at which kids really actually do have some autonomy it make i mean they're different and more complicated than three-year-olds say um anyway that if you look at what that actually says about adolescence it says that um this is a complicated decision and it needs to involve um medical practitioners, mental health practitioners who have expertise in trans kids' health and gender dysphoria. It has to involve school teachers and it has to involve parents. And it completely advocates for those three groups working together. So it goes right back to what Kathleen was saying. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, say it needs to be this person and not those people, or only these people stand up for the kids' rights. It basically says it has to be a bunch of adults who know the kid well and the kid involved in the decision. So that's what the experts, the actual experts say. I think one of the problems is that, you know, we get bits and pieces of this filtered out through the media, we being like, you know, the mass public who are not experts, really. And everybody has an interest in claiming some kind of expertise, which people tend to do in in the name of some sort of symbolic case that best represents the point of view they want, right? And so teachers will come up with this paradigmatic statistic and parents will do the same right and teachers who are supportive of trans kids will say but don't you know that x percent of suicides are trans kids blah 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 you know which it's not that it's not true it's just that it, that's just one data point right and parents will say oh well i heard the story about this kid whose school blah 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 right again it may be true but it's one data point and so people are claiming this kind they're they're taking this i don't know what to call it politicized position of expertise in ways that doesn't relate to the actual kids and to actually what experts are saying. But again, I want to come back to what Kathleen was saying about relationships. And I want to say that I think we, we hear these dramatized stories through the media. Whereas the real reality, I think, is that a lot of actual parents and actual teachers and actual kids who are making these decisions, and sometimes it's about you know gender identity. So it can also just be about things like food, right? I mean, that teachers sometimes take it upon themselves to decide that a kid's food is not healthy and will tell the parents to stop sending that kind of food again i mean problematic complicated etc right i mean there's all sorts of or you know kids sleep patterns kids all sorts of stuff um but i think to to, to blow these up into um sort of theoretical logical problems uh, sometimes can miss the fact that on the ground, a lot of parents and a lot of kids and a lot of teachers are talking these things out. I mean, I got a call from my daughter's uh, 10th grade English teacher yesterday because of the ways she was behaving in class. And we had an excellent conversation. And, you know, it was not her versus me versus the kid. It was the two of us talking about how, you know, what's the best way for this kid to have a good experience of English class. And that kind of thing happens all the time in American schools. I really... Uh love that you brought it back to um, 
the sort of ways in which the press tells the story about how this is happening, right? And and that uh, it is a, a sensationalized story that also includes politicians making political hay of um, of this for uh, uh, for partisan uh, purposes, and and so in thinking about. Uh, you know, the connections to the abortions issues that you've been talking about uh, it, simultaneously as this parents' rights bill goes on the floor, there's other legislation which will uh, limit the ability of parents uh, to um, do medical intervention um, related to gender, right? And so uh, that is absolutely a simultaneous part is the rejection of uh, medical options uh, for parents and kids who want to choose those. Um, so it's an anti-science, anti, and a sort of involving uh, medical expertise in in the sense where it's relevant in these issues and problems. And so, just want to echo that. And I also want to raise up the the very basic point that I think you touched on too, which is. Um, the sort of the quality of of deliberation and the and the ways in which we are enabled to talk to each other across different viewpoints around parenting and and kids and I keep coming back to Robert Talese's construction of belief polarization, which I think is particularly corrosive for how parents are able to talk together about parenting. Um, and, and by together, I mean across and sometimes radically different perspectives. Um, uh, parenting, we treat as a sort of individual and privatized event. It is actually a social practice. And by that, I mean, we are undeniably parenting with other people when we are parenting. Um, we, uh, even if you're in a private school, you are parent, you are sharing the practice of parenting with others. And schools are about where par shared parenting practices come and have to exist with teachers, right? And, and, and those parents have to cede authority to educators. And so we, uh, we don't have good spaces for parents to talk across difference around parenting. It has become part of kind of a politicized discussion that we have with like-minded others in which we are characterizing the views of other people who are not in the space. And, and so the limited ways we have to interact with other people are at public meetings like school board meetings where people come and they uh, sort of state their state their case and they sit down and they clap when other people state a case that sounds like theirs and they you know, and they boo when, you know, it's, it become, it's not a place of exchange or um, engagement with the viewpoints of others. And so I, I find that uh, it, the positive, you know, sort of the, the deficits of a parental rights language is due to those political conditions that we're living under. Um, and it's, uh, so it's a, that's part of the problem. There's also, if I can, uh, jump in as well there's there's all this is connected to so much of what amy mentioned at the very beginning about the sort of the the idea that parenting is uh, a private endeavor in which the state has no interest but also nobody else does necessarily and yet uh this has been a major topic of uh research over the last decade i feel like even like we don't have to talk about you know one group of sort of like-minded political people like facing off against another within political groups, especially for sort of like white upper middle class parents, like the judginess 
among parents uh, it, within that group is so intense about like, are you... Are, you let your kid have this food. You're letting this kid watch this much screen time. Jesus Christ! As as the parent of a two year old, the amount that I that like that <laughs> the, the amount of sort of leverage and and so like all of these things are uh, are part of this. I want to say it's not it like the way that the sort of private sphere interacts with the public sphere in the space of the school is one point or is one point of contact. But exactly as Kathleen says, the entire enterprise of parents is something that we do inevitably in public. And the decisions that we make privately, personally for our own children are constantly subjected to other people's judgment. When I was growing up, I very like, you know, my parents didn't really let me have sugared cereals. We didn't have cable. We didn't, I mean, talking, describing like the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, we didn't have like, I was not, you know, one of the first kids on the block to get an Atari, but it, so it was very important that like, I had this friend who got to do all of that stuff. And so like for my parents that seemed to play the role of like, we are doing right by our child because like, here are the things that we allow in this house under this roof, but also you know, we as parents are going to take advantage of the fact that like there is this other space that the that our kid can go to that we know that doesn't necessarily have our official sanction, but in which they can, you know, get this uh, sort of experience. And I can limit the amount of time that my child spends in this space. Uh, that's the but like, I don't have to be sanctioning it. And yet, here's a place where like this child has some sort of like less formal control than I am exercising. Yeah, I think I mean, Annette LaRose, book unequal childhoods right where she compares the way that upper middle class parents and this is i think she wrote it in it was like 2003 2004 something like that um uh, i've heard um that parenting has become much more like the upper middle class parenting everywhere that everybody's doing concerted cultivation now or at least anybody who has you know the means to do it um the other thing i think that's really changed is social media right i was talking to a younger cousin of mine she's about 10 years younger had her kids about 10 years after me and she was talking when her kids were babies about how they she still wasn't getting any sleep when they were a year and a half and i said oh for heck's sake ferberize your baby which is a technique of like letting your kid cry it out and the dr ferber that's why it's ferberizing um and she said oh but you know what about all the it's child abuse or some people say it's child abuse and i said what and she said oh my gosh it's all over social media and i said oh like different world you know like i mean when when my kids were little i you know read it in a book said seems like a good idea tried it out i mean for the record my kids turned out fine um but now that you put all this stuff up on instagram or whatever they're using these days young parents like you're subjecting yourself to constant judgment about about absolutely everything in a way that even 20 years ago we were not well and and constant judgment by strangers right you know like that so i i feel like the um I feel like the the we need a second, you know, podcast about social media because it 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 helps structure the quality of political debate. It also is the institution with which we are co-parenting all the time. And part of the fear um that parents have is around this fact and the and the lack and the and the amount of control that we are forced to cede to social media um in every way, in all of its liberatory possibilities and in all of its darkness and 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 false falsehoods, right? And so it's so uh, interesting that GLBTQ kids 
are enabled to be freer in these spaces. They are able to explore things that they are not allowed to explore, um, but they are also unaccompanied um, on those journeys by any adults with any um, sort of sense of perspective, per perhaps, not all adults have perspective, but um, they, and so parents, part of what's the fear factor here is, is around uh, we're we're co-parenting with an institution that not only has no moral accountability or sense of responsibility for our kids, but we don't know even what it is or who it is at any given moment of time, which of course makes it this great liberation space, but also not anybody you want raising your kids, right? Not an agent of child rearing, but yet here we are. So I, I feel like that's a very powerful undercurrent throughout this discussion. And God help yeah, you if, as a parent, you say anything about your LGBTQ plus kid on social media, because no matter what you say, you are inviting the wrath. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. Like it's profoundly unaccompanied. It's unaccompanied without the possibility of accompaniment. Yeah, right. I um, I uh, really think that um, so, and, and I, I think parents, uh, I think educators have a sense of uh, kids navigating this reality, right? I think educators are trying to. Um, be uh, good navigators for for kids and in, in, as they're working through some of these issues to the extent that particularly adolescents might trust teachers with different kinds of information than they might trust their parents with and that that the that part of trust building is that the teacher and the parent uh, have the possibility of connecting the way that Amy and and her kids parent I mean, her kid's teacher connected yesterday regarding, let's have a conversation about what, me, what might be going on. Amy is trusting that the teacher has not only her kid's best interest, but her interest in some mind as a parent, um, and that they share that interest in some way, and she can listen to Amy, and Amy will listen to her. All of those are uh, the conditions of trust that are just sort of fundamental when you share educational authority between entities, parents, families, and, and school. And therefore, when we talk about rights, we're, talking, we're not talking about trust or relationships at all, but that is fundamentally what we uh, are talking about. Uh, we're talking about a, a lack of those conditions for uh, re rearing and educating young people. And um, I think that uh, in many spaces, schools and parents can do better and are doing better. But that is that. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of harm being done to kids and um, in communities uh, right now. Regarding and in my own state's a great example of the kind of legislation that will make good education and trusting relationships between schools and communities harder to cultivate. It's flipping around the old sort of mandated reporter laws. It sounds like the the Ohio bill. So it used to be like that, like it used to be, it still is that education professionals like professionals in other uh, domains have a responsibility to report suspicions of child abuse of one kind or another to state authorities. And now it's flipping around to, you know, you have an, a, a 
an affirmative obligation to report to parents on uh, the condition of their child in which like, like a legally mandated affirmative obligation to uh, not just a moral on the basis of trust sort of thing creates a, I mean, the pitfalls for children in this particular, in this sort of two headed kind of thing are enormous. It strikes me. That's just an observation. I think also the pitfalls for teachers, right? I mean, it sounds like the Ohio bill, Kathleen, is a lot like the Florida bill that I wrote about in the OVPES paper that you responded to. I mean, some of the same language. And what I thought when I read that Florida bill was that, I mean, some of this stuff, you know, that the teachers have a responsibility to talk or an obligation to talk to parents if there's some change in the child's mental health um et cetera, et cetera. I kind of thought, well, duh, yes, of course. Like, that's what you would do. Um, but it's, I think you're exactly right, Kathleen, that when you put this kind of thing into law and make it a matter of rights and, you know, legal obligations, rather than a matter of a relationship in which, of course, that would happen, then it be it becomes less workable, sadly. And it also becomes a threat, right? And so now teachers are being put in the position where they're mandated reporters, that they cannot... They must report anything to the government or, you know, government bodies if they feel the kid is under threat, but they also must report to parents, which could put the kid at risk. I mean, it's so it's a it there's no way for teachers to win, which I think might be exactly the point. Well, and and to go back to your earlier point of materiality, like when do we give teachers 10 minutes to make a phone call to a damn parent? Yeah, like, seriously. you know, like where, where in a teacher's day is is she supposed to cultivate relationships with parents, right? Um, and so I, I think the material conditions that we give educators for actually building good and trusting relationships, both with kids and with the community, um, drive uh, our, their ability to even engage this in the first place. So um, I just couldn't resist adding that point and cursing about it at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly legal on yeah. this, uh, on this <laughs> podcast, really what PES stands for. So uh, <laughs> um, it's too much to ask be like, to, to be like, what are your perspectives on ways back from this sort of like polarized uh, defensive sort of posture in which uh, parents and schools are opposed, and yet I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway. Like, what what is what needs to happen in order for uh, schools to be a place again? That again, borrowing from uh, episode one of this uh, uh, podcast, uh, Cam Scribner called like a place for the cultivation of moral community, both inside and and outside of uh, the school. I have two thoughts. One is I um, I believe that a lot of parents find common ground around kids' mental health and well-being right now. Um, I also think that a lot of parents are realizing that as they're debating um, what's in the history curriculum, that a lot of legislatures are slowly trying to get rid of public education. Um, and so in my community, there's this realization that we can debate about whether we're going to fund this or that at the local level. Meanwhile, in Columbus, uh, our educators are 
got the bills ready to fully privatize the whole thing um, so that public education really doesn't exist anymore. And I feel like as people wake up to that realization, maybe too late, but as people wake up to that realization, they see that the real enemy might be somebody different. And it's not, you know, the liberal liberal leaning parent here or the, the teacher that nobody, you know, that people might suspect over there. It's actually uh, a, a sort of a, a something different is happening altogether against the whole institution. And, and in the face of that, can we figure out a way that we, we do this project together um, in the midst of difficult times? So thanks for letting me go first. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think what I would say pretty much echoes what you said. And I, I think I would say, like, we should not let ourselves be snookered by the ways that this discourse of parent right, parents' rights is being used to promote politicians and political agendas. Um, I think if you look at it in context, in context, um, basically two groups of people are being demonized in different ways. Um, and they're groups that have long been demonized. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's effectively, effectively teachers and mothers. Um, I mean, it's teachers and parents, but it's a feminized profession and it's generally mothers who are caught up in this stuff. And I mean, blame mom is, a good way of getting out of any kind of responsibility. So I think I think what's important is to look at the ways that this rhetoric about parents' rights and the bills around parents' rights and irresponsible teachers and blah, blah, blah is being used to promote a political agenda that isn't really about kids or parents or teachers at all. It's a way of stirring up outrage to get other things done. And I think I think our response should not should basically be not to be stirred up by it, you know, to think about like the actual parents, you know, and the actual teachers, you know, and the kids, you know, who are by and large, not crazies. Right. I mean, by and large, these are people who care a lot about kids and want the best done for them and may disagree about what the best is, but not in some, you know, demonic wanting to bring down everything over it kind of right it's it's generally not people taking enormous moral stands it's people arguing over the details which has always been the case nothing is new everything is just louder and more absolute well put excellent well thank you so much for uh coming on to talk about your uh forthcoming work it has been a pleasure talking to you you too Thank you. I'm really looking forward to seeing both of you next week at PES. Amy, get better. Thank you. (laughs) And that is a perfect note to end on. Thanks to Kathleen and Amy for the thoughtful conversation today. For more from them, see the links in the show notes. As always, do subscribe to the show if you have not done so already, and take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. To give us feedback or ask questions directly, shoot us an email at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. New episodes come out every Friday. And up next, we are speaking to Elizabeth Dutro and Jeff Frank about the concept of trauma and the recent attention to trauma-informed practices in educational contexts. For Kara Furman as well, I'm Derek Gottlieb. This is Thinking in the Midst, and we will see you next time. Thank you.